Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Spies. Welcome to On Her Game. Skeleton is that sport that makes my jaw drop, my eyes widen, and leaves me in absolute awe of the courage, skill, and fearlessness of those who compete in it. It's the sport where they plunge headfirst on a sled, their chins just above the ice, down a steep track, travelling at speeds of around 150 kilometres an hour. I mean, even the sport's name, Skeleton, is scary. In Australia, it's Jackie Narricot who flies our flag in the sport. Jackie dreamed of competing at the Olympics and thought the track would get her to the Summer Games. But a chance meeting, one training session, saw her destiny changed to the Winter Games instead. It hasn't been easy, though. Funding for her skeleton program was cut early into her career, which almost ended Jackie's dream before it even started. But she persisted against what felt like all odds at times, working whatever job she could just to pay for her upcoming season. The struggle has been worth it though, with Jackie now at the top of her game, recently making history as the first Australian to win gold at a Skeleton World Cup event. And now she's competing at her second Olympics in Beijing. But Jackie's winter tale all started in a place where it's never snowed and hardly experiences the cold at all in the Sunshine State's capital of Brisbane. I loved dolls and dancing and all the, the really girly <laughs> stuff as a kid, uh, which is the complete cool. different from as I, as I grew up. I definitely put all of that to the side. <laughs> but as a, as a little girl playing, like, playing dolls and house and all that kind of side of things was, was me. But also being outside playing anything with, with my little brother, making sure he was always dressed mm. up in whatever costumes we could find. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that, was, that was me as a kid. What about sport? When did sport come into your life? Fairly early on. So dad, dad was a mad king cricketer. And then um, the story about Uncle Paul being a dual Olympian, that, that was always in the background. But then probably primary school, I was probably seven or eight when sport kind of started coming into it. And then Sydney Olympics when I was nine, just from then on, it, it took off. Like That was the point. I'm going to be an Olympian. I don't care how I get there. I'm going to be an Olympian. And it was sport after school, after playing softball at school. Then athletics came into it. And from then it was, okay, I just want to play sport and be an athlete. And that was it. And your uncle, you mentioned, he was the first Australian to be a dual Olympian in winter and summer Olympics. Um, Was it, which Olympics? Los Angeles. He was there and competed against Carl Lewis. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. and I mean, what do you remember about the stories that you heard and, and growing up with Uncle Paul? I remember a lot of stories just being that he was super fast. And the story about him, he beat Carlos over 60 meters indoors, which I finally found the YouTube footage of a couple of years ago after searching for it for a few hey. years. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the story of Albertville in 92 when he was a bobsledder. And so they, they crashed in the Olympics. And the story that mum and dad always told me was that they, they knew he was fine. But by, by the time the, uh, the television footage got to Oz, they watched it live and like mum and dad were like laughing and like, well, he, like we, we know he's fine. We've spoken to him. It's okay. And grandma was not very mm. happy about the fact that they were laughing that her boy had crashed and <laughs> everyone was like looking, looking on the, the funny side of it. He crashed at the Winter Olympics, did he? Yeah, they did. Wow. Bad? Bad uh, crash? I don't don't believe so. Like they they were they were fine. Um, wow. 
Wow. So what was your main sport before you got into winter athletics, uh, winter Olympics, sorry, <laughs> not winter athletics, um, before you became a winter athlete, I should say, what um, you mentioned softball and athletics and when you dreamed of competing at the Olympics, did you dream of summer Olympics or did you dream of winter Olympics? Oh, it was definitely summer Olympics. I wanted to be a sprinter like Uncle Paul. It was, I was, was going to be a sprinter <laughs> and that was, that was what I had, had my heart set on. Um, and then the winter Olympics didn't come into it until second or third year at uni, I think it was. How, um, how good were you at athletics? How far did you, did you go in athletics? I was okay. I was, was quick, but I only made it to nationals a couple of times. Um, so fairly, okay, well, this isn't really gonna, like, this is, I'm, I'm okay at this. I'm quick, but I was probably half a second, if not slightly more than that off over a hundred meters. Um, if, if, yeah. it, if there had been like a 150 meter race, perfect. Because my, my start was the start was never good enough for the hundred, but then the two like the tournament was that little bit too far. <laughs> um, and so let's talk about Winter Olympics. When did that come into your life, and how did it come into your life? There, there was always that that background of Uncle Paul going. So I, I'd always like known about bobsled, but then I think the the actual Winter Olympics itself came in to my consciousness. I think when when Lydia won in Tur- not Torino, Vancouver. That I vaguely remember like aerial skiing was, was the one that I, that I knew about the, the most. And then I was, tra- I was training with one of our bobsled brakemen in Brisbane in 2011, my last year at uni. And she was like, we need a spare. Do you want to come try bobsled? Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> of course I want to come and try this. <laughs> uh, so I jumped on a plane, my first big international trip on my own to meet my pilot who I'd never met, flew halfway around the world. And tried bobsled it was and that was just like hey let's try let's see if we can go go to the winter olympics why not so how did it come about though can you just explain to me again how did it come about that you just happened to be finding yourself was it you realized it wasn't going to happen in summer olympics so you turned your attention and investigated winter olympics or and you thought you'd try to give bobsled a go is that how it happened yeah so i was training for athletics for uni games and one of the brakeman at the time was also training with my sprint coach to try and get, get, get better at, at pushing. And I think at that point, I'd kind of a little bit given up on the Olympic dream. That I'd, I'd still had hopes of it, but it was kind of like, well, tw- almost, 20, like almost 21, probably not going to happen. Let's find something else. And then the opportunity to bobsled came up like, right, yes, <laughs> let's go. Why not? Wow. So talk about um, that first time that you're on top and you had to go down in the bobsled. What was going through your mind? Take me back there to that moment. How were you feeling and how did you overcome those feelings? I remember being nervous. So we were in Koenigsegg, Germany, which is not that far from Salzburg. And I'd been in Europe for a week, I think it was, because we got there about the week of the first World Cup. So I'd seen it. I'd heard how loud it was. Tried it on a push track. Some of the, the photos from my first day are incredible. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why is that? Just like this year, look of, oh my God, I've got to do what? <laughs> um, and push this thing as fast as I can. Um, and then just standing at the top, it was, it was nerves, but it was excitement. And I'd been told by my driver that it was going to feel like the most, like the loudest, roughest roller coaster I'd ever been on. And that I was probably going to feel sick when I, when I finished, but that was okay. <laughs> like, okay. 
So I, I knew roughly what I was in for to a certain extent, but yeah, like that, that first, that first run was just a complete bloke. I got along and went, okay, I do feel a little bit sick because <laughs> I just had my head between my knees going faster than I've ever gone before. Yeah, I didn't see right. a thing. Um, yeah. But all right, let's go again. That was fun. Did you love it? Were you like, that's awesome? Was there adrenaline or was there fear going through you at that stage? Oh, it was definitely adrenaline. I loved yeah. it. I was like, all right, let, <laughs> I'm, I'm in. Wow. Let's go again. Um, and then what happened? How soon were you competing? How soon were you out there in, in the bobsled? Did it take long to kind of understand it and get a hold of hold of the sport? Yeah, so pushing is quite technical, quite technical to, to a certain extent. Um, I was also incredibly light and weak for a bobsledder. <laughs> um, right. So just learning how to how to move the sled, how to like what's touch, what not to touch, how to do all the mm. this, this sled work side of things on top of trying to learn how to push. Thankfully, mm. the my pilot Astrid had a um, cooperation with the Germans, so they did a little bit of, uh, of coaching of like, okay, put yourself in this position and push from here. Um, but I was, I was competing in a, my only race in the Bobsa was in, in a Europa Cup in Koenigsee in Germany. And we finished seventh in the end after sitting in third. And I've still got the, still got the, the scars on my ankle from, <laughs> from the, the push. That's pretty cool. That's pretty good though. For your first, first run. Am I right? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, yeah. And then that, yeah, that was my only race because the, the girl I was with, we, we, we were close, but she was 10 kilo heavier than, than I was. And in bobsled, the weight is absolutely everything. Yeah, right. Why is that? Explain that to me. Why? Just the, the, heavier, the heavier you are and the closer you are to maximum weight, then the, the more uh, momentum you'll, you'll pick up faster. Being a, a gravity sport, the heavier you are, the, the faster you go theoretically. Now, Astrid, I've heard her name before in bobsled. She was um, Yana's old training partner, Yana Pittman's. Um, were you after Yana or prior to Yana? I was before Yana. Before Yana. Did yeah. Yana come after you? Uh, she was a couple after me. So there was... Right. Yeah, so I was bobsledding twenty end of, end of 2011. And yep. then I think Yana came in 2012, 13 or 13, 14. She was definitely, definitely in it for the Olympic season. Yeah, because our episode with Yana Pittman, she talks about Astrid being an old sprint buddy from back in the day and then she recruited her. It's all making so much <laughs> sense now. So um, how did you get into Skeleton then? How did you go from bobsled to Skeleton? So my first week on tour, um, I actually met our Skeleton coaches, the the, the World Cups, uh, Skeleton and bobsled uh, travel together on the World Cup circuit. And mm-hmm. they were like, you're too small to be a bobsledder. This is your first World Cup, you said. So the first year that you're competing. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I wasn't competing at the World Cup, but we were, so Astrid and Jamie, the, the brakeman, were competing at the World Cup. I was just there mm-hmm. to, to help out and be the, be the spare. Um, yeah. But as, as skeleton guys, were, our crew were also there. And I was like, okay, well, like, let me try bobsled first because that's why I'm here. <laughs> and then <laughs> eventually I just that, that thought in the back of my head stayed there and I was invited to a development camp in Lake Placid in the US in the March of 2012. Got home from bobsledding, kind of forewarned mum and dad when I was still in Europe. Like, I think I want to try this. And I'm like, okay, well, like, let's come home. We'll reassess financially. If, you, if, you, if you've got enough cash, then go for it. Fine. 
I think that I'm, I'm not sure whether they're regretting that, that decision or not because I got <laughs> got the blast and I was like, so <laughs> I'm switching sports. Yeah. So what was it about skeleton that you absolutely loved? The speed and the fact that I was in control. So coming from the back of back of a bobsled where you see absolutely nothing and your hand, your life is in the, the driver's hands to, okay, my destiny is in my hands and being a sprinter growing up. And I think the individual side of things was probably more, more my cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it was just, okay, if I make a mistake, that's on me. If I do well, that's on me. All right. Mm. It was just so much fun. <laughs> All right. Before we go on, for those who don't know, take us through the ins and outs of a skeleton. Because I have to say, this is, I reckon skeleton is my favorite winter sport. I just love it. I have so much respect for you guys who do it. And everyone always asks if you could do a winter sport, what would it be? And I reckon I would love to try skeleton one day. Not now, but back in the day before I had kids, I probably would have liked to. But um, so take me through it. For those who don't know, take me through what it is, speeds, what it's like. Okay. So skeleton in a nutshell, it basically... You take a boogie board that has two metal runners down the, the bottom of it, um, take a running start and dive on head first and go as fast as you can without any brakes. So my feet are my brakes, um, <laughs> and that's that's kind of how we stop the, the spikes on, on the bottom, bottom of our shoes. We go about – the fastest sled is 145 kilometers an hour, give or take. Yeah. But most of the time, we averages are probably about 130K an hour. Tracks range from from – just over 1,200 metres in Austria through to almost 1,900 metres, which is the longest one in St. Moritz. And yeah. they're all different. Um, the number of curves is different. The angle is, is different. Nothing is the same. And the so a, a race is, is two heats. Fastest combined time wins. Out of the two of them. Yeah. Okay, so it's not just one good run. You've got to have two good runs basically. Yep. And for the wow. for the Olympics, it's four. Oh, it's four. It's accumulative over four. Yep. Okay. Um, does that suit you? Yeah, I think it. I think it does. And take me through the sled. Like, how expensive are those sleds? Um, and does the quality of the sled and the price of the sled make a difference? Yeah, it, it does. So my my sled that I've got now is about six thousand pound when I when I bought it. It's so about 10,000-ish Aussie dollars. Yeah. That's an expensive boogie board <laughs> yeah. as you explain it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then you've got the, <laughs> the run-ons on top of that, which are about kind of 1,200 minimum per... Yeah, that's not even with the runners. Okay. Yeah. 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 There's there's two two main manufacturers, um, Bromley, which is which is the, the sled that I'm on, and then a stiffer sled, uh, which is a Schneider sled. So they, you can set them up to be super stiff or super flexible depending on what your preference is and whether you'd like to like really feel and be really in control of, of where the sled's going. Um, the certain tracks suit, suit different sleds, just the slightly stiffer sled can go through a, a corner in a slightly flatter way, which in some tracks is precisely what you want. Whereas on other tracks, you want to actually be able to manipulate it a, a, a little bit more. Do you have weight restrictions? We we do now, yeah. So at the moment, the current weight rule is that for women, it's a combined weight of 102 kilo maximum. So that's us and all of our equipment that we get on the track with. Okay, that's a lot. 
It is, but it's less than what some of the, the girls were weighing in Pyeongchang. So the, the, the old way rule was wow. super confusing. But now, thankfully, yeah. it's, much, it's much more streamlined. And yeah. it's, for, for the girls, at least, it's really even the field. So how do you go fast? That sounds silly, but when you've got a whole heap of girls who have, say they've got all the same sled, how, where do you pick up speed on the sled, oh, on the track, sorry? Pushing fast definitely helps. But then once you're actually on the sled, it's being able to, able to put the sled in the right position using the minimal amount, amount of work. So you need to work, be able to work with the track and use what the track's going to give you to put the sled in the right position. If, it, if we've gone down a track and it's fast and it looks like we've done nothing, perfect. But sometimes mm. the flip, flip of that is that you can also go down a track and it looks perfect, but it's slow because you've steered far too much. So there, there's that mm. optimal amount of input where you're just doing enough to keep it, to keep it running. It is a crazy sport, head first down, going 140 kilometres, head first down a track. Like what does your mum think of it when you said you were going to do this event and go, actually, I'm not going to go luge, I'm going to go, Bob, not going to go bobsled, I'm going to go skeleton, head first. What was her reaction? I'm sure she thought I was crazy. <laughs> In fact, everyone thinks I'm crazy, which is fine. <laughs> You've got to have a certain amount of craziness, don't you, to do skeleton? Yeah. But that being said, it's the safest of the three sliding sports. So I will take going head first any day of the week. Okay. Explain that to me. It's, do you say safer than say bobsled and luge and luge where you're on your back feet first? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And because, because of our center, center of gravity, we're only an inch or so off the ice and everything's going in, in the, like, the same direction that we are. So when we crash, it's they, they tend to be far more gentle. It would we'll just roll off. The, occasionally, you'll we'll come flying out of a corner, but for the most part, they're, they're quite gentle. We just hit walls and we bounce. Whereas with luge, you're going feet first into a wall. Well, then your feet aren't going the same direction that you're going, and like they break ankles really easily. And also, too, their their sleds are a lot higher. So when they crash, you you crash and come up from a lot higher up. And their sleds are a lot more sensitive, so they have a lot more control over where they go, which is, is how, how they go super fast. But also when that goes wrong, it goes really wrong. Whereas like right. when it goes wrong fast, it's not quite so dramatic. Right. When has it gone wrong for you? <laughs> Plenty of times when I was learning. <laughs> <laughs> take me through the first and then take me through the worst. Okay. The first, we were in Calgary in Canada. And how long into your career were you, did you crash? This was four weeks, maybe. Okay. (laughs) So three weeks. Yeah. So this was October, 2012. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a corner kind of eight is notorious for, for crashing. So we kind of been warned, came around the corner, came out of, they dropped down too soon and just got picked up on the end of it and rolled off. Um, Next thing I was sliding down this massive straight going into Kreisel. Sled was kind of beside head me. Head uh, Yeah, head first at that point. Um, <laughs> sled was beside me like, this isn't how this is supposed to go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just push the, push the sled in front of me like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not dealing with this. Yeah. <laughs> and stopped half, halfway around Kreisel. I think I, after like the shock of going, okay, sled's in front of me. It's gone. I'm okay. All right. <laughs> I was just laughing. 
How do, do they say to do something in particular when you're crashing, like just to let your body go, not to stiffen up or like what do they teach you about crashing to crash safely? Um, ideally, if there is such a thing. Yeah, there is. Um, ideally, hold on to your sled is, is what you're told. Like if, if you can, keep keep hold of it, keep hold of it. Because when you crash, the most dangerous thing in the track at that point is your sled. So then you're also told, okay, if you can't keep hold of it, make sure that thing is in front of you. Because you'll stop yeah. first, and the last thing you want is your sled coming down behind you. Um, yeah, yeah. God knows what speed. Um, so yeah, you're always thought, all right, if, if you're kind of out of control, just get that thing going down the track. It'll stop eventually, and you'll stop well and truly out, out of the way of it. So what's the worst crash that you've you've been involved in? Either in Whistler in Canada, which is the fastest track in the world, out of corner six because that one you kind of come flying out of and land on your side. That one hurt. Um, or in Koenigsegg, in, in Kreisel, that it, it's notorious for people like getting it wrong and crashing. There's some right. good crash videos coming out of that corner. Right. But thankfully, all of my crashes, it's just been a bit of bruising. Get back mm-hmm. on, straight to the top and go again. I've been, been very lucky yeah, with right. that. Have you been okay with getting back on the sled? Yeah. Yeah, it was fine. Um, Whistler, I've, I just felt like an idiot. I remember doing it and being like, oh, I can't believe I've just done, I've done that. Like everyone's told me what to do and I still stopped it up and I felt so bad. <laughs> Our coach was like, it's fine. You've been sliding for like three weeks. Don't worry about it. What um, Can I ask if anyone, I hate to be morbid, but if people died doing your sport yes but only when there's been things in the track explain that so sometimes um there'll be stuff left in the track that shouldn't be in the track so whether that's a sled so every every now and again um when skeleton and bobsled are training together sometimes the the skeleton start will get cleared when a bobsled isn't quite isn't necessarily completely out of the track and if they let, if they let go of that bobsled, then that's coming back in the track. And if you meet that at the wrong point, then it's catastrophic. Um, but thankfully, nothing's yeah. happened for a very long time. There's been a couple of stories in well, incidents recently where there's, yeah. there's been track crew in the track. Um, but for the most part, it's 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 fairly safe as as long as the tracks the track is clear, then we're yeah. we're pretty well pretty safe. What parts of your body are you kind of using to to kind of um, to direct and to drive this sled? Because um, your arms are pinned back, right? Yeah, my my hands are under my quads when I'm sliding because that, that's the safest safest place for your hands to be. Otherwise, they tend to get a little bit beaten up. It's also faster. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. steer with our literally heads, shoulders, knees, and toes. For the most part, it's shoulders and knees. Um, and the, using your head is the most subtle steer you can do. So like the whole thing of, if you look, look where you want to go, then you'll, you'll eventually go that way. Go that way. Yeah. And then our toe steering is the fastest way to get our sled turns. Toe steering. Yeah. Oh, by like, you, do you touch the ice or how do you yep. do that? Yeah. Foot, in, foot into the ice. So our shoes have a toe cap on them. That yeah. enables us to, to to put our feet on the ice without completely burning through the shoe. How do you how do you start as a beginner in skeleton? It feels just like too dangerous to start 
okay, now put your feet down on the ice as you go down 140 kilometers an hour. How do you do it? How did you, how do you become a beginner and do such a dangerous sport? So the uh, International Federation has um, development camps and starting schools. So that tends to be how a lot of people start. And then you, you don't start from the top. You start from half, halfway down the track and then you gradually learn how to control the sled. And then also you learn where you are, what you're looking for, what you're feeling for, because um, you can get yourself into some big trouble if you steer. So if you're going to a corner, if you're going down and you steer yourself down, then that just exaggerates how far down you go. And on some of the corners that have two pressures in them, so two waves, if you steer down <laughs> really hard, then you're just going to get yanked up even harder. So yeah. that, that awareness of, okay, this is what I'm feeling for. If, and you basically told like, if you're going down and if you're, if you don't know where you are in a corner, you're better off not steering because you'll come out of it eventually. And it's better to not steer and just let the corner take you than make it worse. Mm. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about fear now? Because what's your relationship like with fear? I'm probably more fearful doing things outside of my sport, particularly leading into to major to major events. I'm super careful. What about, scares you? Uh, snakes and spiders. Funnily enough, I can't stand it. Even <laughs> being in the UK, like not nah. <laughs> get them out of here. <laughs> Where's the girl from Breezy gone? <laughs> but that, that's the thing. It's so ingrained in me. Every spider's going to kill me. No, just get rid of it. <laughs> we need to bring the girl home. We need to bring Jackie home. Yeah, need some uh, some <laughs> reacquaintance with them deadly, deadly animals. I've gotten soft. Was fear something that you had to overcome? Being doing what you do and doing your sport was. Did you have to learn techniques into being able to be able to control fear and nerves and things? Probably more nerves, but I, I learned pretty quickly that. I feel more nervous and bordering on, well, yeah, bordering on scared, I guess, on certain tracks when I don't feel prepared. So going mm-hmm. down, down Whistler, which is the fast track in the world, or Altenburg, which is like another gnarly track in Germany. If you don't feel prepared, there's, and you're not 100% on your game, there's a couple of corners there that will bite and that will hurt. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. okay, I need to know exactly what I'm doing. And that, that tends, tends to calm most things down. But the, I only remember being scared once and that was after my concussion coming back. Mm. And that was completely because of the outcomes. I, I wasn't scared about going down the track or like what that was going to do. It was more, okay, well, what happens at the end of this if I'm dizzy? That's more what I was, was more what I was scared of as opposed to going fast again. Take me through that concussion. When was that? So this was my third concussion and by far and away my worst. Um, it's the year after the Olympics in 2018, sliding in Calgary, my first run back from the year. Um, and in Chrysler, I hit a bump in the track and immediate, immediate headache. Like, okay, that wasn't particularly pleasant for run one. <laughs> Go again, hit an even harder run two. And from that point, like, okay, I am done for the day. And then I didn't really pick up that it was concussion because I was on my own. I didn't have courage, didn't have physio with me. It was the, the subtle signs of I couldn't look at my phone for more than about 30 seconds. Bright lights, I really wanted to sleep. I had a massive headache. Um, doing any form of physical activity gave me a headache, made me feel sick. Mm. So that was, <laughs> that was a little bit scary. 
push through it. Like, okay, well, I'll just stop for a couple of days. Do we 10 days to get back on ice? And then competed for most of the season, got to Eagles in Austria post-Christmas, and I was super emotional over the most ridiculous things. The runs weren't that bad, and I was super emotional um, and, and kind of unresponsive to questions too. Like Apparently I had friends asking me, like, are you okay? And it would take me a couple of seconds to reply to that. Mm. And then we went to St. Moritz the following week, and St. Moritz is the – best track in the world it is super smooth it's flowy it's only only natural track so there's no vibration it's it's never bumpy it's just the most amazing place in the world and sliding St. Marie it's made me dizzy and at that point we were like okay really need to go home and get this sorted was diagnosed with Mm. post-concussion syndrome in the end which completely ended my season which sucked I was sliding well and then when I got home from that I couldn't walk around town without feeling drunk. Wow. Did you feel physically ill? Uh, no, I didn't feel sick. It was just once the adrenaline of being on tour completely wore off, then, then we realized how, just how bad it was. Um, yeah. I couldn't watch TV. We tried playing darts and any form of mental strain just made me mm. dizzy and completely out of it. So. Thankfully, the UK had some pretty good um, concussion and neurologists. I saw them eventually managed to get on a plane home, finally. Um, Mm. And it took me six months in the end to get back to being completely recovered. I saw a vestibular physio in in Brisbane, which I had no idea that that a vestibular physio even existed. Mm. Um, But thankfully, they figured out that my brain was fine, had at least one, if not two, MRIs on, on my head and no, no damage there, thankfully. But it was all coming from my, my ears and my eyes, just not, not focusing and not being, not being able to control my eyes. So my depth perception was, was mm. completely off. It was a, was, a, was a long road back. How frustrating was it not knowing when this is going to end or how this is going to end? Did you think this could possibly be the end of my career? hundred percent. Yeah, they the most frustrating thing with concussion is there is no timeline. So with a, with a hamstring, you know, okay, well, in six weeks, I'll be fine. With a concussion, it's like, okay, well, what does today bring? And mm. it's different every day. And you, you take two steps forward to then take three steps back. Mm. And it's just, it's the little things that kind of get you going. And I was fine. But the, the, the one thing that we, that we needed to do was, was return to sport which for skiing and snowboarding in Oz, oh, that's fine. Let <laughs> go down to, to pressure. For us, we, we had to wait until I was overseas. And I remember mm. having a conversation with my sports psych. And like, okay, what are you going to do if this is it? Like if you get on your sled in Whistler and you get off, the, and, you get off and you're dizzy, what are you going to do? Like, well, my head, my health has to come first. Okay? Mm. But as I didn't like, it needs to be a clear, needs to be clear cut. Either I'm okay, or I'm dizzy. There can't mm. be any gray area. Because if there's any gray area, someone's going to have to tell me to stop. But if it's clear yeah, cut, yeah. then then I'll be okay either way. Thankfully, it was completely okay. <laughs> but I think having how did how did you know you were right to get back on? You hadn't had any dizzy spells for a while, or how did you know? Okay, I can I can go down this run. I can give it another go. 
So <laughs> in the gym, we had um, a, 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 they're for Pilates. Um, they, they, it's, it's almost like a, a board that spins. So we put mm. that down, then we put a box on top of that, and I would lie on the box in my position, and sp- they'd spin me around, or I'd spin myself wow. around to get a sense of how the G-force was, was going to react with my head. It was yeah. that, and then lying on a vibration plate as well to see how the vibrations yeah. would affect my head. While looking at a string that had, it's called a rock string, and it's got three different balls on it that are yeah. at different lengths, and you're supposed to be able to focus on them. We did all that and I was doing all that fine. Training had been going great. So I was fit. We'd done multiple cognitive tests. So, um, there's impact, which is one of the tests. Then there's uh, cog sport, which is another, they're, they're all computer-based concussion tests mm. um, that we have to do every year to get a baseline. So should there be a concussion, we can go back and, and test and see what, whether we're okay to go back on either ice or snow. Done all that. And then it was just a case of, okay, we've got to bite the bullet. Our medical team at OWI were like, okay, so can, is there a way that we can make you go like 50% fast? Like, do you ha- like, is there a beginner yeah. track? Like, well, no, mm. <laughs> but I oh, can yeah. start halfway down the track. I'm like, yeah. okay, well, that's going to have to do. So started quite literally halfway down the track <laughs> and just putted along, barely made it up. I think I made it up like half the outrun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But then it was a it was a long process to get back to the top. We got there. How, um, I mean, was it a big bump to your head? Did you do it on a run coming down? Did you hit your head hard? What was it? Was it that triggered all that? It was a pretty good knock. So there's, a, there's a piece of concrete, I think it is, in, in Calgary, in, in a corner, which some people hit, some people don't. I just happened to hit it twice like really concrete hard in yeah, the corner yeah the the way the concrete is shaped because the most of the track aside from St. Moritz are all concrete based so if the concrete's not quite flat um and they haven't and there's, there's not quite enough ice on it to cover that particular bump then that can can get in, in the way it's also at the expansion joint between pieces of concrete so I just happened to hit that at speed that would have been 100 and 15, maybe slightly more kilometers an hour. Hit that. Yeah, speed. Yeah. Um, and did you come off your sled at that point as well? Nope, never crashed. Just hit it. It was in the middle of the corner. Just kept going. Yeah. Did you hit it on the side of the head? Uh, no, it would have been my chin that hit it. So coming through and just gone smack. Oh, wow. Okay. Is there much research into and knowledge into concussion in your sport that you could rely on at all? There's a little bit. Um, the Canadians went through a lot of post-concussion stuff after Whistler. So when they had Vancouver um, Olympics, they were throwing themselves down Whistler at its absolute fastest six times a day, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, so they had they had a lot of it. And actually, I think I owe the Canadian team quite a bit for not letting it get any worse than what it did. They were... Uh, my coaches at the time, I had a, tra- a coaching partnership with them. And yeah, yeah for sure, without them, I, I would have kept sliding. I would have gone to Whistler. I would have gone to Lake Placid they, that year. And who knows where it would have been. So I owe them quite a bit. The, so the Canadians, the, the Brits are also pretty strict with it. Some of the, the other teams are less so strict. 
which then doesn't really help when we get off the track and go, guys, it's bumpy. It hurts mm. my head. And the mm. ABSF go, like, we're trying. And I was like, oh, guys, come on. Like, <laughs> even in, yeah. in, Winter, in Winterberg this season at, at the World Cup, first run I got down, I was like, oh, my head hurts. I'm like, guys, like, corner 11 sucks. Please fix it. <laughs> And they were yeah. like, look, it's warm. We're like, yeah, okay, I understand that. But we're not telling you because we want to go faster. We're telling you because our heads hurt. And if I'm telling yeah. you my head hurts, please fix it. Like, Isn't there a bit of responsibility to make sure it's safe and to make sure that they fix it all the time? If they're saying warm, it's warm, so it's melting the ice, therefore it's yeah. exposing a lot of those bumps a lot more. Yeah. Um, I think in fairness, it does take a lot of effort to, to hand shave the entire track it's the, the, there's a lot of ice to to work on but, but it's still a little, a little <laughs> it's bit your brain. yeah and yeah like they're they're trying to to get on top of the concussion thing but the one thing that has the biggest impact is ice condition and that seems to be a little bit harder to to get right which is annoying because for luge it's yeah. always super smooth but for some reason when we get on it they're like yeah it's fine like it's not right. Our heads are on the ice, and they. You say they hand shave it. Yeah, it, it's kind of like um, a big version of a razor blade, I guess. Um, yeah, and yeah, they they hand shave the whole thing. Some of the tracks have a machine that does it, and they're the really bumpy tracks because you 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 lose that that feel. It's a it's a fine art, and some tracks are absolutely unreal at it, and other tracks are less so. Do you, have you had any um, ongoing effects from it at all? Thankfully not. The concussion? Mm. Um, I, I've also learned to, to manage it and learn what, what I can handle, what I can't handle. Talk to me about some of the challenges of being an Australian and a winter athlete. What's been the biggest challenge? Um, I only laugh because I can see a big smile on your face. <laughs> like, where do I begin? Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. I think the... Yeah. More, more globally, the, the biggest challenge being an Aussie athlete is the fact that we have to leave home for so long. So mm. before I moved to the UK, I would leave home beginning of October and I wouldn't get home until mid-March every year because the, the, we only have two weeks off at Christmas, which isn't long enough to fly home. By the time you add mm. in a 40 degree temperature change and the time difference and all the rest of it, plus flights are expensive. Mm. <laughs> so that's, that's like three grand that I can set, that I can put towards towards sliding yeah um then there's the obvious lack of funding um so trying to get access to a coach and get access to training time all of the the big teams have their own tracks so they can just go and train and if, if they've got a week off great then we'll go home and slide whereas for us we're like okay emailing all the different tracks going okay who's got ice time where is it what time is it where's all the races mm. how is this all going to play into a finances because each one in a training block you're looking at 30 euro per run every mm. time um thankfully r- racing is by far and away the cheapest way to get training in sure <laughs> and then it's yeah and the, the the time away from family and friends and not necessarily having a home base for, for christmas or for, for weeks off mm. i was um i was talking to your mum, cheryl <laughs> Um, <laughs> and she said that, yeah, it's been over 10 years since you've been home for Christmas, which is a long time, really long time to be away from your family for, for Christmas. Um, 
Just on the funding, you said you started off and you went to a training camp in the US. Was that part of an Australian winter sport program that you were put into? Yeah. Or was that something different? No, when when I first started, the girls skeleton team had a had an AIS program, so we were very good before I before I started. So thankfully, I came in yeah. came in with them. I came in as a development athlete. So initially, I think they paid for first year. I think it was my they paid for my flights first year to get me around tour, and then second year they paid for they they reversed it and they paid for everything else. We just had to pay for our flights which is by far and away yeah. the, the better way of doing that from a financial point right. of view. Um, it but, is, yeah. But then Sochi happened and we didn't perform as well as what was uh, anticipated. So we lost a lot of, all of our funding and the girls are retired. And it was left with you. So yep. the funding was cut. You're only a few years into the program. Your funding's cut. What do you do? How did you, you had to fund your own program then? Yeah. What did that involve? Uh, bank of mum and dad lots of help from them. <laughs> um, Thanks Cheryl. Oh, big time. Yeah. Without them, there's no way I'd be sitting here. Um, and I went to world cup without a coach. I met, um, one of my, one of our old coaches that set me up with uh, a Dutch friend of his to, to travel with. Um, mm-hmm. and she's still, we're still good mates now. And it was just trying to find the funds from whatever little support our into, uh, from what our national federation could could give us, I think at that point I had I just gotten onto Q, into a QAS individual scholarship, so there was a little bit of cash there. Thankfully, go Queensland Academy of Sport, awesome. Yeah, yeah, they were they were great. Actually, they're the ones who bought my sled a couple of years before Pyeongchang, so I owe them for my sled. <laughs> great, great. Um, yeah, and then slowly the irony of them. Queensland being the sunshine state and so much sun and no snow. <laughs> So, and, and now we're but, becoming the, the um, home of winter sports. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of cool. Um, yeah, I know, with Brisbane and the new aerial skiing yeah. facility that they've built up in Brisbane, um, amazing. Um, that must have been really, really tough. So no coach, no funding. You had to organise your own trips, your own plan, everything. Did you sometimes, like, did other coaches from other countries for want of a better term, almost feel sorry for you or, and give you tips and give you little bits of advice and coaching on the way. How did you deal with not having any coaching and being so new to the sport? Every now and again, yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, the two coaches that I had in the two years before Sochi had set me up with a pretty, pretty good understanding of to what to what to look for, what to feel for. So, mm. And I'd been on, on most of the tracks, thankfully, before I needed <laughs> to go back without a coach. But yeah, that, that yeah. first year World Cup, there was, I'd get a little bit of help um, and not being able to offer anything. You then like, I didn't have a physio, so I couldn't offer a camera. I didn't have any money, so I couldn't offer them them cash. And that like, cameras and cash is how these <laughs> skeleton and bobsled world work. If you can offer one of them, then you can usually get something in return. Camera. What do you mean by camera? Uh, video, video camera. So for everyone the entire way down the track there'll be coaches videoing everything because that, that's how we wow. how, how we learn from each other and get yeah. better um and I remember there was one one race in in Eagles and I was running up and down the track trying to figure out what on earth I was trying to do <laughs> one of the coaches was mm. like okay like slow down what's going on and took me through one of the corners like okay all right I can do this yay <laughs> 
How close were you to quitting if that was the case? It would have seemed like a really difficult task to continue on. It was. There were a lot of tears, but for some stupid reason, like, okay, this is, this is just how it's, how it's got to be. <laughs> if I want to do this, I, I, I also took the hardest path I possibly could have. So on the lower, the more developmental tours, the IBSF provides a coach for all of the, the smaller nations and I do a little bit of that, but I also I also knew that regaining a World Cup spot was going to be a lot harder than keeping a World Cup spot. Okay, well we've got it. I'll throw myself in the deep end, compete with. Mm-hmm. I, I want to beat these girls eventually. So the best way that I sought to do with that was to put myself in the same changing changing with, as them and learn from them, watch, watch everything mm-hmm. everything they did, which I think helped. Yeah. Far out. So when did that change? When did you start to get funding again? Leading into Pyeongchang. So I got a I got an IOC scholarship, which thankfully okay. enabled me to fund my entire season. I could buy new runners. So an IOC, an International Olympic Committee, not an AOC, Australian Olympic Committee. No. An IOC scholarship. Yeah. Right. So cool. they, it's called um, Olympic Solidarity. And every, every team gets one based on your team size at the previous Olympics. So we had, but from Sochi, we had 10 scholarships as a country. And thankfully cool. I was one of them. So that's brilliant. Great. That helped. How soon after you lost your funding, did you get that back? How long was that? Two and a half years. I think I had it the, yeah, the, the year, year and a half leading into Pyeongchang. How much, without funding, how much does it cost the bank of janky Jackie Narakot. Without new equipment and without a coach, yeah. about 30 grand. Each year. Yeah. So you pretty much spent 90 grand. I'm spending my inheritance. Olympic dream alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like over summer slash our winter, work as much as I can, try and save as much as I can. And then yeah. put it all on the credit card. And slowly, yeah. slowly try and pay that back. Yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. But worth it now. Oh, 100%, yeah. Saying that, you've given us a background of just how difficult that was not having that funding and then finally getting their IOC scholarship. Um, Pyeongchang, when you qualified for your first Olympics, that would have been a really validating moment for you to be able to be there after everything you've been through. It was absolutely unreal. I got to try on our speed suit in St. Moritz before it, before everything was official. And just seeing the Olympic rings on my chest, I was like, yes. <laughs> I did it. We're almost there. Finally, I got there. <laughs> it was worth it. Oh, everything was worth it. Hands down. And then walking up for the opening ceremony was just the coolest thing ever. Weirdly enough, the Russians got a, got a bigger cheer than we did. But that's fine. We still, <laughs> we still got to do it. And our, our Olympic team is phenomenal. The, the, yeah. the sense of team that you get from the second you walk into that village is such a loving and supportive environment to be in. It's, just, it's so nice. How did you finish? And was it everything that you expected, the Olympic experience and your own results? Okay, so I finished 16th, which I was disappointed about. I really wanted top 10 and I thought I was cap- capable of top 10. But looking back, 
for the position I was in experience wise, coaching wise, setup wise, I really, really made four or five mistakes, which mm. just happened to be in a position <laughs> in a part of the track that caused some, some issues, but it wasn't that bad. The Olympic experience was, was awesome. There was also, it also threw up some different challenges too. So my boyfriend at the time, now husband competes, well competed for GB in skeleton and the, the men race before the, before the women, he was mm. sitting in front of metal position for runs three and four, which was before our first aid competition. So I was watching him compete mm. and I didn't take into account the emotional roller coaster and <laughs> just how much energy can be sapped from emotion. So watching him, he went from bronze in run three and then run four, he came down, lost a spot, like, oh, all right, no medal. Then the Latvian came down and dropped two spots. Like, yes, all right, bronze. <laughs> so like low, high, all over the shop. Yeah. Got to the track. Like, can I feel a bit flat? This, this isn't how I yeah. thought I'd feel for run one of my like Olympic debut. Mm. And then run two half. I'm like, okay. I had energy again. There was like that excitement, that nervous energy. Like, this is what I expected to feel mm-hmm. yesterday. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it was it was an interesting experience and just being able to to run around and support our Aussie team and be in that Olympic experience. Like the everyone talks about mm. about dining hall for good reason. Because it's <laughs> just walking yeah, everyone talks about dining hall. <laughs> the fact that it's 24 hours and there's just a ridiculous number of people in there. <laughs> even even for a for a, a smaller winter Olympics, it was still crazy. So Dom, he competed in for Great Britain. He's now your coach, isn't he? Yes, not he despises that coach title, but too bad. <laughs> Does that mean for this year's Olympics he's going to be wearing the Aussie uniform? Oh, it does, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> Finally. You must be loving that. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. It's great. <laughs> Getting, How get does it. he feel about it? <laughs> I've just seen pictures of him being so proud, being the Great Britain athlete, Olympian, and now of all the countries he's going to be wearing an Australian Olympian uniform. Bright green and gold. You must give yeah. him a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> Oh, so um, did it light a fire in you though, that Pyeongchang? Because you say 16th and you were disappointed. You're 16th in the world. You had no coach, no funding for most of that. You had to do it the hard way, spending almost $100,000 supporting your own career. You got to the Olympics and then you're 16th in the world from Australia. You're pretty much cool runnings happening, but that's an incredible result. Thanks. Yeah, it's just I think it was the because I'd I'd set myself up to to be top ten. That's what I thought I wanted. I, I learned mm. very quickly outcomes are bad <laughs> because that's what you focus on. Sure, sure. Um, journey focus on the journey. Exactly. Yeah. Cliche as it is, it's the truth. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just it was okay. I think what do, what doesn't help is that because I know there was only twenty of us in the field. So to me. Mm. It's not 16th out of the world. It's 16th out of 20, which no one else sees and no one else knows. No. But yeah. <laughs> Just like, still oh. what you see. Yeah. Um, 
So your build up to these Olympic Games has been so incredible, Jackie. What's been different to this build up, to the previous build up to say Pyeongchang and, and even your results in previous years? Funding. Definitely. Mm. So thankfully after Pyeongchang, the, our Olympic Winter Institute came on board and they've, mm. between them and QIS, have actually managed to be able to fund most of my season. I've been able to fund a coach. So the, the first mm. two years of, of this, this Olympic quad, I had a partnership with Canada and having a coach to talk through lines with and teammates. That was the other thing. I actually had mm. a team around me who I could travel with and have fun with. And I wasn't completely on my own. Like even having having Joska, one of the Dutch girls, it was still either just the two of us or just mm. me. So um, teammates who are Australian or teammates being joining with the Canadian team? Joining joining w- with the Canadian. So we did have a, yeah. a, a mouse slider, John Farrow, going through most of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the other boys, so Nick Timmings, who also qualified for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. But we yeah. were usually on very different tours. So there yeah. was never that, yeah, that, that yeah. camaraderie. So you can't share coach and things. Yeah. Yeah. So having that. So you share a coach with the Canadian team? Yeah. When did Dom come on as your coach? Dom came on when COVID hit because (laughs) when COVID hit, the Canadians lost all all of their funding. um, And then they they weren't sure if they're going to have a coach, who they were going to have as a coach. Um, And most of 2020, 2021. Um, mm. I didn't, I didn't compete. So Dom was the, the one race I had in Eagles. Dom I, w- was here. I managed to, to do a bit of a deal with, with a mate who would video me then send it all the way back mm-hmm. to Dom. And that's, that's how it's worked ever since COVID hit. And you were okay. Were you out of lockdown by the time that you could start competing? You could get on tracks again? Ish. So well, you didn't go down like your local local school hill or something on a boogie board. You pulled it out. I mean, tempting. So Dom Dom yeah. made a push sled. It was very tempting to not take that down. <laughs> Might have got myself killed. Probably a good thing I did. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. um, it was so stressful. Oh man, they trying to do all the different re- risk assessments. So because it was, I, I'm I, I'm manager as well as athlete. Trying to sort out where I could go and what lockdowns were like and COVID restrictions and mm. all the different hoops we had to jump through. And yeah, I, I was still, I was still here when, yeah. when the, most of the rest of the world were out competing be, because they were all based in Europe. So if, if a country locked down, well, they could drive home Yeah, and they had yeah. coaches and people who could, who could manage it. And I was just saying to everybody, like, look, I can't, no. I, I can't be coach, athlete, yeah. manager, and COVID officer. Yeah. No way. As well. So much. Um, so take me back to just a couple of weeks ago and your incredible gold medal winning run, the first Australian skeleton athlete to win gold at a World Cup event. And it was at your favourite track, St. Moritz. Um I loved, I obviously work at Fox Sports and I loved waking up in the morning and then seeing this and watching this and I'm like, that is going on the news. This is amazing. And I said to my producer, I was like, you've got to watch this. He's like, really? And then you watch it. He's like, 
this is amazing. I was like, yes, just to listen. If you haven't heard it yet, go back. It's on YouTube and just listen to it. The commentators, they're losing their minds talking about you as well being an Aussie as well. And they're like, she's going to win it. It was just amazing. What was it like for you? Like, especially weeks out from the Beijing games. I mean, first of all, it must be hugely encouraging, but everything you've been through is such a validating moment. Oh, yeah, exactly. I crossed the finish line like, yes, okay. I've been wanting to be the first Aussie to <laughs> to win a World Cup medal. It's not just in Gulf, it's in any sliding sport. The, my entire career, like, that's, that, that, that's the one I want. And as Brig was getting closer, like, maybe it's not going to happen. But to actually get it, I'm like, oh, I finally did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And you knew, didn't you? I love it. You turned turned to whoever. It was a Dom right behind you or someone and you're like, did I win? Did I get one? Did I win? That was the first thing that you said. Yeah. So coming up. Which I love as well. This is the first time I've seen when you stop, they've got all these cushions and padding and stuff to make you stop at the finish line. I wanted to bring that up before I found that interesting. But you knew, didn't you? You knew that was a fast run. You knew you were on track. You knew you possibly could have won. Yeah. But I didn't know until I got to the like a few meters out out from, from those pads because coming up the outrun in St. Moritz, you can't see the screen. So you've got no idea mm. exactly mm. exactly where you finished. And I I thought I could see so Kristen's the, the, the guy in the orange is the Dutch coach and he we have a mm. part like a working relationship with them. So he'll pick up my sled. And I thought I'd seen one finger. And one finger definitely like means that, that you've come down in first. Regardless, <laughs> regardless of, 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 of where you're sitting. Like okay. Yeah. I think that's I think that's what I've seen. But there was so many cameras that like, okay, like before I celebrate too much, <laughs> did I actually win? <laughs> did, like, yes. did I do it? Did I see one finger? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And he was like, that well, was like, awesome. you might have tied. Like, I don't care. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I'm still one. We're good. I'm still the first. Well, yeah. well done. That was such an incredible moment and timely as well. Ahead of the games. It must give you huge encouragement. Is it a different run. I'm hearing something about a 360 degree run for the first time at the Beijing games. Is that right? Okay. So what you're hearing, um, there's a corner called Kreisel or spiral as they've nicknamed it. And it's a 360 degree turn, uh, corner, turn. which yeah. we haven't had in an Olympic track for a very long time. Cause the last That's tricky, that sounds tricky. It is, but we have we have Kreisels in just about every other track. It's just a very unique thing to have in in a in a recent Olympic track. Yeah, very cool. Um, so in every podcast, we get someone close to our guests to record a message from them. And um, you mentioned before about your uncle Paul. You he was the first Australian to be an athlete at both the winter and summer Olympics, and now you've been able to do it being the first Australian skeleton athlete to win a gold medal at a World Cup event. Um, And thanks to Cheryl, your mum, we got in touch with Paul and he's recorded this message for you. Hi, Jackie. Well, it's been quite a journey for you these last 10 years touring the ice tracks around the world. Those first few years were really tough, contending with the solitude of travelling and competing alone for much of it. You could have tossed it in, but you're stuck. There were injuries, disappointing results, but you stuck and gradually got better. At the World Cups, we started to see glimpses of hope, a good run here and there, but never the complete performance to 
get you a top 10 placing at World Cup level. Then after 10 years, the planets suddenly start to align. You're in great physical shape. You've got a fantastic coach in your husband, Dom, and you've got some good equipment. Suddenly, you get a chance to finish not just top 10, but on the podium. You say, bugger the podium, I'm going for gold. You had the talent and composure to step up and take your chance. Track record, gold medal, absolutely fantastic. You're an absolute credit to Australian sport, the way you go about things on and off the ice, Jackie. We're just so proud of you and so thrilled that things are finally happening for you. Can't wait to see you and Dom in the Aussie green camo gear. That's going to be quite a sight. We'll all be cheering for you in Beijing. I know you can do it. So go get them, Jackie. It's your time. Thanks, Uncle Paul. (laughs) So I got all the feels hearing that from Uncle Paul. Yeah, it's it's nice to get that that validation from someone who's been there and done it and and knows what it's all about. Mm. What's your dream for your sport? You've done it the hard way to get to your second Olympics, to get to make history, but you've done it the hard way. What's your what's your dream for your sport? I would love us to have a program again, like like we had prior to the but but not just for the girls have it for the boys as well we are good enough we've got the athletes we keep proving that across the entire spectrum of winter sports there is no reason why we can't be competitive on a world cup level week in week out we just need the backing and that'll come i hope (laughs) um we just need to be able to to get the athletes on ice and get them the support they need initially to give them the chance to, to show us what they're capable of. And you've proven it, haven't you, that the difference that that backing can make where you are able to take your career with that backing, with that funding. Yeah, and same with the, the girls who came before me. They, they, had, they had coaching, they had support, they had everything they needed to be successful and they were successful. So there's, they've done it before, I'm doing it now. There's no reason why we can't do this continually. Mm. Well, we finish every podcast episode by asking our guests what, if they could go back in time, if they could speak to their younger selves, what's the one message that they would give that younger little Jackie Narricott? I would say keep going. It's not going to be the way you dream it in your head, but you will get there. It's just going to take time. And if you keep pushing through, keep believing in yourself, you're going to have some of the most amazing friends from around the world and get to travel to all these really cool places, but it'll be a little bit colder than what you'd imagined. <laughs> You'll miss that Queensland sun, it's Queensland sun and Queensland tan, won't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Jackie, it has been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much about skeleton. As I said, it's a sport that I've always been so interested in and I just think it's crazy but exciting and just leaves me in absolute awe of what you do. Um, And I've learned so much about what it takes to get there and what it takes to compete. And you've done it the hard way, but you've got amazing results and you are flying that Aussie flag in that winter sport arena for every single one of us. So thank you 
Thank you for doing it the hard way. Thank you for keeping going and thank you for everything you do for Australian winter sport. Um, And we can't wait to see you compete in Beijing. All the best. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for sharing your story with On Her Game. On Her Game is presented by me, Sam Squires, Producer, Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggins.